Well, who uh, enjoyed the week of spring we had and got right back to winter this morning? <laughs> this is a beautiful day on the drive-in this morning. Nice little, uh, nice little rain, and uh, which you know we need the rain. It's it's nice to have that too. We're glad you're here with us this morning. If you're in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that uh, you're here. We're in week five of a series called A Call to Cruciformity, where we are working our way through the book of Philippians, uh, Paul's letter that he wrote to this church that is uh, in modern-day Greece, right on the Aegean Sea, this, this town called Philippi. And, and as we've read through this, we told you last week that Paul's letters are, are I like to refer to them as progressive. And, and what I mean by that is each section leads to the next section. Each section builds into the next section. He says something in order to set up his next point. And as Paul writes these letters, you need to understand something with Scripture. If you didn't know this, when Scripture was written... There weren't chapter and verse markings in them. That was added a a few centuries later by the early church fathers for our benefit, so that we could break it down a little bit, understand it a little bit, keep track of where we're at a little bit better. And so when Paul wrote these letters, that's exactly what they are. He didn't sit down to write a book. He wrote a letter that, just like you, maybe in an email or letter, you say something, it leads to the next paragraph, it leads to the next sentence, and it just flows from one section into the next. As he's done this, Paul, just to kind of recap, has talked about the importance of partnership together in in the gospel and and in ministry. He talked about understanding what you live for, saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. We got into chapter 2 when he talks about the humility of Jesus and how we should embrace that same humility, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says. Then last week we talked about the last half of chapter 2 with how to be a light in the world. And he he wraps that section up by talking about two guys named Timothy and Epaphroditus, two two of his protégés, two people that he had trained, that he was sending out into ministry who had helped him. And he just spoke very highly and glowingly of them. And and as we look at that and we get ready to dive into chapter 3 today, I want to ask you a question that is really going to be Paul's main theme throughout this entire section we're going to talk about today, the first part of chapter 3. And the question is simple. What about having Jesus in your life has made your life better? Now, if you're a Christian, you can answer this. You can jot it down on your notes. And if you don't have something that pops in your head right now, think about it and answer it later. What about Jesus makes your life better? Now, there's one catch to this. Before you write an answer down, I don't want a Sunday school answer. I don't want you to say, it's salvation and the promise of heaven. Don't give me that. Think practically. What about Jesus in your life makes your life better? We get here into to chapter 3 today. And again, Paul has just went and, and gushed on and on about Timothy and Epaphroditus, what they do and why they're valuable to him and why they mean something and matter to him. And he, he turns the page as he gets into chapter 3 here. Starting in verse 1, here's what he writes. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's quite the contrast. And that's actually kind of what this whole section is going to be, is kind of a compare and contrast that Paul's writing here. But just look at this. Rejoice, there's that word again. We said that's one of the big themes through Philippians is joy. He, he says it over and over. This is already the sixth time he says joy or rejoice or something based out of that word in this letter. But then he says also, look out for the dogs. Look out for those who are going to do evil and those who are going to, to attack you and, and, and preach the wrong things here. I think he's talking about two different things here. First off, he's talking about those who might persecute you. 
And in our culture, in our country, we haven't seen this yet. It's probably coming. We're starting to maybe see some little tastes of it. Just a little bit of persecution coming here and there, but it's going to potentially start to grow. It was doing this in Paul's day and time. But I think, too, when he talks about watch out for those who would do evil, I think he's also talking about those who misuse the gospel. Maybe they weaponize the gospel, or maybe they just preach the wrong sermon. He, he says this because, again, Timothy, who he just talked about, and he just mentioned at the end of chapter 3, a few years later, Paul writes him two letters. We have in our New Testament, First and Second Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn, aside, uh, or they'll, they'll turn their ears away from truths and turn aside to myths. Now, you would think Paul was writing that about right now. But obviously, it's happening in his day and time, too. But you see this. You see churches or preachers or whoever it may be twist the gospel because it fits an agenda. They don't preach for transformation. They don't preach for information. They preach to affirmation. And we see people running to that type of sermon all the time. We see people running to that type of preaching all the time. I, I told you this before. There's a lot of times I get up to preach and I say, man, I wish I wasn't having to listen to this today. Because it's a part of scripture I don't really like. But it's not my word, it's God's word. It's God's word that we have to listen to. And too often, I think Paul wants us to, to keep, keep aware. Hey, listen to what's being said. I think it's so easy these days to get scripture the way you want it. Now maybe that's not necessarily from a church, a preacher like we're in today. You guys come here because you trust how we deliver the word of God. Or you go maybe to a different church because you trust how they deliver the word of God. But social media has made it where we can get our hands on a verse or two that are taken out of context and make them mean whatever we want them to mean. And it's so easy to share that it's so easy for people to be deceived and misled. And we may not even realize we're doing it. Paul's just warning us, be on guard. Watch, watch what you're consuming and watch how you're consuming it. He kind of turns his phrasing, though, just a little bit as he gets into to the next part of this chapter. Again, Paul kind of goes back and forth with this chapter, and it's an interesting way that he does this. But I love how he, he, he says this, starting in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. He's talking about the Jewish people. <clears throat> We're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So far, so good, right? We're people who worship God. We don't pay attention to what the world throws at us. Although, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Hey, don't have any confidence in the flesh, but I have good reason to have confidence in the flesh. And, and he, he goes a step further. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Paul's very humble here, right? Hey, don't pay any attention to what your resume might say. But I'm going to do that because mine's better than yours. That's basically my translation of what Paul just said here. And then he gives the resume. In case you don't believe him, he goes ahead and gives it to you. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, okay, Paul, I see you. I see what you're doing here. You're letting us know how great you are here. After all, you just said, I am not just a Hebrew, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not just a fan, I am the fan. Like, I am the super fan, the one that you're going to put on TV all the time because I'm decked out in all the gear, right? 
I'm not just somebody who is an Israelite. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe the kings came from. I'm not just somebody who holds the law. I'm a Pharisee. I was on track for the Sanhedrin. Paul had it all, and he did. Paul had it laid out in front of him where he was on track to be somebody who really, really mattered to the Jewish people. Let me ask you a question. What's your greatest accomplishment in life? Now, again, I'm not looking for sugary answers here. So don't write down, it's my wife. It's my kids. They're my best accomplishment. No, just let's just think for a minute here. I saw some people elbowing each other on the wife thing. Maybe that's not your greatest accomplishment. You guys need to talk with somebody. I'll give you Brad Fogo's cell phone number when we're done. You can contact him. Um, No, what's your greatest accomplishment? Maybe your greatest accomplishment is you, you started your own business and you grew it into something very successful. And it's blessed a lot of people, it's helped a lot of people, you've employed a lot of people, and you've done very well with that. Maybe you didn't start a business, but maybe you started working someplace when you were a teenager part-time and you worked your way up into upper management with that, that business. Maybe that's your greatest accomplishment. Maybe your greatest accomplishment is something you did in the past. You were an all-state athlete in high school, or you got a college scholarship. Or, or you, uh, you, know, you performed with music and, and earned your way through college doing that. What's your greatest accomplishment? Maybe your greatest accomplishment is the fact that somebody comes to your house and eats your barbecue and says, those are better ribs than Jack Stack has. Maybe your greatest accomplishment is you set a, a record on Rainbow Road on Mario Kart when you were 12 and your brother could never touch it. I don't know. What's your greatest accomplishment? Paul just rattled off all of his here. And let me be very clear, whatever you say, that's my greatest accomplishment, whatever your resume looks like, whatever you've done, those are good things. I remember with, with one of mine, uh, one of the things I've always uh, cared about is, is education. I've always uh, tried to strive to, to further myself and gain more knowledge. And I, growing up, you know, it's like I was just... I knew I was supposed to go to high school, go to college, go get a job. That's how the world worked for me. I watched on my mom's side of the family especially. That's what everybody did. My cousins, I'm the fifth of six cousins, and, and all of them went and got a college degree and then went and got a job. On my dad's side, that wasn't the case. And I remember after I graduated, got my degree, my uncle gave me a card and said, you're the first person in our family to graduate college. He didn't just mean our little bubble. He meant the whole extended family. I didn't know that. That... that was new to me to understand that. It was an accomplishment that him and my grandpa even were proud of. What are you proud of? Again, it's not bad to have things that you're proud of. It's not bad to have a resume that looks good. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Ambition is a good thing. God gave us gifts and talents for a reason, and I think that we owe it to him to take pride in what we do and to do the best we can for the kingdom with those. The the trap comes when it becomes selfish ambition, when you do it for yourself here. And I'll be honest, there are times those things that that I say, this is something that I'm proud of, this is a great accomplishment for me, there's times if I'm not careful, I'm trying to achieve that because it makes me more valuable in society's eyes. It makes me feel more important to culture or society or someone. And we have to ask, why are we doing that? Maybe it's validation. Maybe it's trying to cover an insecurity. Maybe it's competitiveness, and so-and-so did this, and I want to beat them. I want to I get there before they did on this one. I don't know what it is for you. But when we look at our resume, and you look at what's on your resume that you've accomplished, 
keep it in perspective. Look what Paul does here. He turns very quickly as we get into verse 7. Because in verse 7, after he's just given you his entire resume that's better than yours, he says, verse 7, he says, but whatever I had gained, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. I mean, right there, he just, boom, heel turn. All that great resume doesn't mean anything. He goes on to say in verse 8, Indeed, everything, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You notice where his resume stops? His resume stops with Jesus. All the stuff that he mentions is before he finds Jesus. After that, he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't keep adding to it because he doesn't need to anymore. He says that... that the, 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 just knowing Jesus alone is worth all of that other stuff, worth more than all that other stuff. He goes on in verse 8, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Man, Paul just basically said that resume that I have, I'm going to wad it up and throw it in the trash because all that matters is that I know Jesus, that I know God, and that he knows me. I think what Paul's saying here is something we need to be aware of. There's a cost with discipleship. There's a cost with following Jesus. And as our society gets a little further and further away from Jesus at the center of it, that cost is going to get greater to the point where at some, some point, every one of us is going to have to answer the question, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it to follow him? Am I willing to lose all of it to follow him? See, once upon a time, not that long ago, it was socially advantageous to follow Jesus. You can date this clear back in church history, all the way back to the fourth century when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity. And suddenly it was a disadvantage to not follow Jesus, or at least call yourself a Christian. And that's kind of how society has gone. And our society here has picked that up. And, and that's how we've been throughout our, our nation's history. But these last couple of decades, we've drifted away from that. And again, you have to ask the question, is it still socially advantageous to follow him? I don't know what the answer to that is. Maybe, maybe not. But I know there are some circles where it's certainly not true to be that way. And you have to ask yourself, am I still going to do it anyway? Am I still going to follow him anyway? I think that's what Paul's telling us. I had everything that I needed. I was set for life. I was on track to become somebody who not just mattered, but maybe one of the most important people in all of Israel. And I'm willing to give it all up. I think what he's telling us here is a few things. First, his story is impressive. It absolutely is. His resume is impressive, but he says it doesn't matter. All that matters is Jesus. Second, he's comparing and contrasting the old way with the new way. And yes, there are some things about the old way that are good, but ultimately, this is what matters here too. This is what the book of Hebrews does. If you've read the letter to Hebrews, it, it is all about how things used to be under God or un, under the old covenant and how they were good, but how Jesus is better. And third, Paul is demonstrating the superiority of life in Jesus to life for the world. This is our challenge too, church. We have to, to offer culture offer our world some alternative to what they currently have. We, we said this a couple of weeks ago, if we can't do that, then what are we doing? 
What are we offering them? We have to show them how Jesus is better. We have to show them how Jesus is, is greater than anything else they can come up with on their own. And there's a trick to that. Because we can't go out to a world that cares nothing about Jesus and may not even believe the Bible and say, well, Jesus is better because the Bible says so. It doesn't work that way. If they're skeptical about the Bible anyway, you can't really use it as a tool or as a source. You've got to show them. Not just tell them, but show them why Jesus is better. Show them why living for God is better than living for the world. And let's be honest, sometimes, sometimes you've got to do this to yourself too. Because you can read this Bible, you can believe what it says, but sometimes you need other reasons than just the Bible says so. It's kind of like this. I don't know if you've, you've been this way. My mom was always one that she was good at complimenting me, good at not necessarily brushing up my ego, but telling me that I mattered, telling me that I was, you know, a handsome kid, that I was good at this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but you're my mom. You're supposed to tell me that. <laughs> you need to hear from other people to kind of validate that, right? I think we're that way with the Bible sometimes. We know it, we believe it, we trust it. Sometimes we need an answer from someone else to validate it for ourselves even. Not to say that we should ignore it. Not to say we should disregard it, because we certainly should not do that. But sometimes we have to look and remind ourselves why. And I think when we look at the text here, when we, we kind of read what Paul's saying, he gives us three reasons that we can tell ourselves and three reasons we can share with other people why Jesus, and living for Jesus specifically, is better than not. The first reason he gives is this. You enjoy a personal relationship with the God of all creation. When you live for Jesus, you enjoy a personal relationship. Not just relationship, but a personal one. You, you probably understand this. There's a difference in a relationship with someone and a personal relationship with somebody. You've got somebody in your life, maybe even a friend. You would call them a friend. Somebody you get along well with, you work with, you see, church person, whatever it may be. This is a friend of mine. But then you've got somebody over here who is really a friend of yours. That kind of knows you in and out. They know more about you. you probably got people that are popping in your head as I say that right now. Let me ask you a question. What's the difference between this person and this person? What makes your relationship with this person over here a little bit more special than with this person over here. This one over here is a good relationship. It's a person you value, a person that matters to you, but it's just not quite this person. What's the difference? What makes the difference? What makes this one over here a little bit more special? Take that a step further. What does it mean to you to have a special personal relationship with God? What does it mean to you? I think, this is, this is for me, I think it means to me that I have someone that the more I pursue and chase after, the more he pursues and chases after me. The closer I get to him, the closer he gets to me. Proverbs chapter 8 says this, God speaks through the writer and says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Don't underestimate the word diligently there. Those who seek him earnestly and, and diligently will find him. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, our three kids. Our, our middle one, Amelie, is, is maybe the world's worst at looking for something. You send her to look for something. She comes back 90 seconds later. I couldn't find it. Probably because you didn't look. Yesterday, we had an absolute meltdown before a basketball game because she couldn't find her jersey. We told her at noon, go find your jersey, find your shorts, find your shoes, all your stuff. 
At 2.30, our game is at 3. At 2.30, uh, I can't find my jersey. Did you look for it? Well, I looked in my closet. That was it. Walked, and when I say looked, she did this. It's not there. She really wasn't looking for it. We wound up tearing her room apart, which was already torn apart anyway, because she's nine and in third grade. We found it in Titus's closet. <laughs> hanging up. Um, I got blamed for hanging up in the wrong closet. I quickly turned that around on my wife and said, you can't blame me for putting stuff in the wrong room when you say I never put stuff away to begin with. <laughs> but... Um, Guys, hold on to that one. <laughs> That's like my one flaw in life. I'm not good at putting laundry away. It's the one flaw I have. So. But, you know, she does this with anything. <clears throat> Go look for it. I can't find it. You have to actually look. <laughs> we do the same with God. I can't find God. You looked for him for 90 seconds, and then you went and sat back down on the couch. You have to look for him. And it says, if you look for him diligently, you will find him. Paul illustrates this in a couple of ways in this passage. First off, he, he says that he wants to know him. This word know, it doesn't just mean know who he is. Again, you have people in your life that you know who they are, but do you actually know them? In the Greek, it's the word gnoskai. And this word gnoskai means to know intimately. It's the same word that's used to describe a relationship between a husband and a wife. And that's not the connotation here. You know, we read this, and as adults, we kind of, as kids, we would even snicker. He knew his wife. Like, I know what they're talking about. <laughs> that's not exactly what it means. It's not the connotation, but it's the same level of deep knowledge. The same way that as, as a married couple... You get to know more about each other every day, and you're like, how can I possibly learn more? Well, you spend more time, and you still learn more. You get to know that person. And Paul says, I want to know God that way. But he says something else, too, a couple of verses earlier. This is how you get to know God. He says, I counted all his loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, there it is again, Christ Jesus my Lord. It is easy to read that and go right past that. But pay attention to the word, My. Because this is the first time Paul switches from just calling Jesus Lord or the Lord to making it personal. My Lord. This is something that I think we, we don't talk about enough. Yes, we talk about living for God. We talk about doing the things. But how often do you stop and remind yourself, I have to resubmit and surrender to him every day because he is the Lord of my life. Not just a Lord, the Lord, my Lord. Everything that I have is his. Everything that I do is his. Because he is who I give my life to. Now again, compare this to, to a relationship with somebody you're willing to submit and surrender to, to just somebody else in your life. Where does God fall on that? Is he the friend over here or is he the friend over here? That's what Paul's challenging us with here. No matter who you have in your life, what you've done in your life, we need the reminder that Jesus is the most important person in our lives. That we need to remind ourselves of that and put him where he belongs. And this is what separates, I think, Christianity from all the other religions out there. Because all the other religions, it's about what you can do to get to God. Christianity is about a God who came to us. Several years ago, I did a sermon that I borrowed from a friend of mine because the, the visual blew me away. 
but he was comparing Christianity to other religions, and he put a ladder on the stage. And as we're talking about the other religions and what you have to do, I climbed up the ladder because it's about getting your way up to God, but not us. Christianity is about a God who came down the ladder to be with you, who came down the ladder to give his life for you. That's actually the second thing that we're going to talk about here. The second way that living for Jesus is better is you know, you remember that your status before God isn't based on your religious performance. I'm so glad that's the case. I am so glad my status before God isn't dependent on how well I follow him. It's based on his love for me. That doesn't mean that I can neglect the way I follow him. I'm supposed to live for him. I'm supposed to to walk in his ways. But my identity in Christ matters more than what I do before God. And what does that identity before him look like? It's very, very simple. He, he, He tells us who we are. What does God think of you? Well, let's just put it this way. You should let God's opinion of you define you. Let God's opinion of you define you. What's God's opinion of you? It's pretty simple. His opinion of you is this in 1 John 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children of God. You're not just called any random thing. Children. Maybe you've got kids that you've kind of quote unquote adopted. They're not your kids. Maybe they're your kids' friends, but you call them your kids. You treat them like your kids. You love them like your kids. You'll buy them a birthday present. You'll buy them a Christmas present. We are adopted into God. We are called his children. uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says that we are his workmanship. This is one of my favorite verses. Especially when maybe I'm listening to the enemy a little too much, telling me what I'm worth, or what I'm supposed to be worth. And then I say, you know, I'm God's workmanship. Some translations say craftsmanship. The same Greek word is used elsewhere in antiquity and is, is translated as masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. Not just something he made, something he made brilliantly and beautifully on purpose for a purpose. That's what his opinion of you means. Let his opinion of you define you. But you may say, what is his opinion of me? How is it quantified? Simple. The death of Jesus determines God's opinion of you. Jesus' death on the cross determines what God thinks of you. Romans chapter 5, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't wait for us to get our act together. Didn't wait for us to come to him. He died for us anyway. That's what the God of all creation thinks about you. That he sent his one and only son to become one of us to become like us, that we could come to him. And what Jesus did on the cross for you should define who you are more than anything you've done, more than anything you can accomplish, or more than anyone else can possibly say about you. But the third reason why why you should take heart and why living for Jesus is better is that your present struggles in life are going to prepare you for eternal life. Your present struggles will prepare you for eternal life. Paul writes in in his letters that my present sufferings can't compare to the glory that awaits me. And we get this. You understand this. This is what gets people through difficult times. Maybe it is persecution. Maybe it's, it's a body that is no longer working the right way. Maybe it's just a hard time you're going through in life. I don't know. But whatever it is, it's preparing you for eternity. 
Now hear me out on something. I'm going to say something and I I want you to hear what I'm getting to when I say this. Often I think that as Christians, we look at our entire goal in life is to make heaven. I don't think that's true. Yes, heaven is our reward. Heaven is what we get to. But our goal in walking with Christ isn't just to get to heaven. Our goal in walking with Christ is to be transformed daily to become more like Christ. And heaven awaits us on the other end of that. And not just walking to be transformed like Christ, bringing others to help them get transformed as well too. I think when we look at this, we look at what this means and takes. To become more like Christ, it goes back to the title of this series, it means to become like the one who was crucified. To take on the form of Jesus on the cross. And what does that mean and what does that look like? It means what are you willing to give up and sacrifice every day to live for Jesus? What are you willing to take that the world says makes you important, that the world says makes you valuable, and throw it away like Paul says it's rubbish? I don't know what that is for you. But I know in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Are you able to say that? Are you able to say, I've been crucified with Christ? Because here's the thing. Jesus gives you a new perspective on life. It's a life that we have that when you take on the cruciformed life, it's not a life that ultimately leads to death. It's a life that you have because of death. A life that came out of the death of Jesus that you have taken on. When you're baptized, we, we say you're taking on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes about that in Romans 6. You're giving, letting the old way of life go and embracing him. I think the point we have to remember is that everything that we do in the name of Jesus, it's just that. It's for his glory, not ours. Mark chapter 8, Jesus, there's a lot going on. Jesus has just fed the multitudes. He's fed thousands of people. He's healed a blind man at a place called Bethsaida. He's been with his disciples, and Peter has declared him to be, uh, to be God. And after all of that, he's having a conversation with a large group of people. And they're asking, what does it take? How can we become like you? How can we follow you? And he gives them, I think, one of the hardest commands in Scripture. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What's he saying? He's saying, I don't care what your resume looks like. I gave you gifts and talents, yes. What matters is, are you willing to throw that away for me? Are you willing to throw that away for God? One of my professors in Bible college used to say, you cannot have Christ without the cross. You cannot have Christ without the cross. I'm gonna take that a step further and say, you cannot be like Christ without the cross. You can't be like Christ without bearing his cross. What does that look like for you? Because here's the kind of the the spoiler alert. It's different. It's different for each of us. The the cross that that I need to to bear, to be crucified from, it's not the same one that that you need. So what is it for you? Maybe maybe it's being honest with yourself. 
writing things down. Maybe it's, it's having somebody in your life that can hold you accountable and be honest to you and say, this is what you have to give up for Jesus. This is what you have to give up to become more like him. I don't know what that is. But I know this. We all have things in our lives that we love so much, that we're so passionate about, that we just can't stop talking to other people about them. For me, often, this is like a TV show or a movie. Um, I know Jennifer and I are very good at jumping on the bandwagon of a show after it's already off the air and ignored the hype for so long, and then we suddenly become huge fans of this show. We, we like, you should watch this show. You know, we're currently in season five of a show that went off the air like three years ago. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my brother to watch Parks and Recreation and The Office. Like, they've been off the air for 10 years now. Like, they're the like best shows ever. My dad said something about me one time, and, and I know this was true, but he finally called me out on it a few months ago. When we were uh, in Mexico last fall, my dad stayed at our house with our kids for a while, and he noticed, you know, once I kind of get into a hobby, it's like, I'm just in. I'm in the deep end. I don't wait in. I just go for it. And so, you know, of course, you get all the stuff to go along with it. And he, he noticed, you know, like my hunting stuff or, you know, the stuff I have in my basement that represents different teams. He's like, man, once you're in, you're in. <laughs> like, can you go for something? You really go for it. So what is it for you? Maybe it's, maybe it's the Chiefs. You are... There is no chance they're going to lose next week, right? And you're telling everybody about it. We do not get all the penalties. We get more penalized than anybody else. You're going to beat that drum all day long. What is it? I can tell you as a lifelong Chiefs fan for the past two years, man, I am <laughs> really excited for, for next week, right? <laughs> On board, man. One of you all told you it would happen, right? What is it? What is it in your life? that you are so excited about, you just can't stop talking about it. Next question. Why isn't that Jesus? Why isn't it him? That you're so excited for what he has done in your life that you can't stop talking about it. So, so here's a takeaway question for you today. Same one I started off with at the top. Why is your life better with Jesus? And you can flip that question or, or change the first word and you can, you can ask it how. Uh, either one works. And again, think practically. Because whatever your answer is to this question, that's your sermon. That's your word. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. You don't have to tuck it under your arm and go knock on doors to tell people about Jesus. You need to show them. Show them why your life is better. Show them how your life is better. Hey, my life over here, it was good. Now it's better. That's your story. That's your testimony. That's your sermon. Live it. Preach it. Show it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you gave us Jesus. We're so grateful that you sent him to us to become like us so that we could become more like him. And God, I pray that we would recognize in our own lives why he is better, why he is an alternative to the world that we want. And God, I pray if somebody hasn't fully recognized that yet, I know people are out there that are trying to on for size, taking them for a test drive. You would show them, Lord. Speak to them. Or let us speak on your behalf or, or walk on your behalf to show, show them why. God, we're so thankful for your son. 
that he's not just redeemed our lives and reconciled us to you, but he's transforming our lives too. God, we're so thankful for him. We pray today in his name.